Our Father, those are tremendous words that we sing, to be in Christ, to be united to Christ our Savior, in whom our life is hidden and in whom we have been brought into the intimate fellowship of our God, the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this tremendous grace, and it is a grace that does not preserve us from troubles in this world any more than it preserved our Savior who endured the cross for our sake. It does, however, and you promise to us to give us the strength, as we just sang about, to endure whatever it is that you bring our way with the strength that you supply. And to the end, that we will be glorified with you, O Christ, in the resurrection, that we will be with you forever in your kingdom, and ultimately in a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells and where your glory illumines it for all of eternity. Enfold, er, enlighten our eyes more and more to lay hold of these glorious promises that we could live for you more faithfully uh, until that great day in this world. And so, Father, we pray as well that you would open your word to us, that you would give us understanding as we come again to the book of Ecclesiastes, and that you would prepare our hearts to remember this coming kingdom in the table. It's all to your glory that we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, as we come back uh, into this great book from the hand of King Solomon, as we would hold Solomon's basically treaties on what it's like living in a world under the conditions of the fall, groaning under the weight of sin, awaiting its redemption. And one of the glorious truths that he's going to point us to uh, this morning is what uh, Tim has been taking us through uh, so helpfully through the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, namely that God's providence rules over everything that he has made. We delight to see that in the book of Joseph. We learn so much. We are encouraged in our own lives to remember that whatever events come into our lives, whether good or bad, in the case of Joseph, mostly bad in the first half, uh, are not random, that they, they have a purpose behind them, that even in his life we saw that God was co- accomplishing something that was bigger than what he could see in the moment, but in the end was shown to bring about much good. And what we admire about Joseph's life is that he trusted him and he was faithful in the midst of adversity, and we're encouraged to do the same. And so that has been so encouraging. And if there is one great truth and doctrine that has brought so much comfort to the hearts of God's people, it is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, or namely his, or his providence. And sovereignty speaks of who he is in his nature. It's his rules, that he is king over all, all of that he has made. He's king over the universe. Sovereignty speaks of his absolute authority. Providence is essentially that sovereignty put into action, the way that he exercises that sovereignty over all that he has made to accomplish everything that he has designed his creation to accomplish. And it is such a comforting doctrine. I remember reading a long time ago a, a phrase that I've uh, repeated many times, but it's, it was from the Puritans, and they said, the sovereignty of God is the soft pillow that they lay their head on at night. It's the soft pillow. You can sleep contentedly at night knowing that God holds all things in his hands, even the details of our lives. And so it is a glorious truth, and it is at the heart of what Solomon is going to present us with this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Let me read the chapter, uh, verses 1 through 10. We'll cover the first six verses this morning, and then we'll finish it up next week. But let's read it first, the entire section. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortunes may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or towards the north, whether the, wherever the tree falls, there it is or there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman... So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. 
The light is pleasant, and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And so Solomon continues to give us wisdom and really in a summary form of everything that he has been teaching us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is, is how to live wisely in a world that is to us mysterious. It is under the sovereign hand of God. It is directed by His providence for His purposes. And yet, on the ground, as it were, in our own experience, it's full of mystery. It's full of uncertainties. It's full of contradictions, even as things so often work out very differently than what we would expect them to. He has confronted us then with the realities that we face, again, in a fallen world, the realities that we can all connect with at some level because living in this world, it is our own experience. And Solomon taps into that. It gives a realism to life under the sun, as he says. It gives a realism to life in a world that is vanity and futility apart from that being lived in the fear of God. And so he's been summarizing essentially in chapters 10 and especially in chapter 11 and chapter 12 the, the, the total of this wisdom, the essence of this wisdom and then how we're to take it to heart and, and to live in a way that produces not only wisdom but contentedness in, in light of all of the things that are beyond our control which in, in one sense is everything. First then, in verses 1 through 6, let's put it under this title. Wisdom balances uncertainty and responsibility in light of God's providence. Wisdom balances uncertainty and responsibility in light of God's providence. That's one way to summarize these first six verses. Uh, Let's note first then that wisdom, in light of this truth, the uncertainty of life's events and yet our responsibility to live faithfully before God, uh, with this encouragement, one, that we are to invest wisely in light of life's uncertainties. Invest wisely in light of life's uncertainties. And this is verses 1 through 2. Let me read them again. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And here then, Solomon essentially gives us two valid or two ways or he essentially uh, summarizes for us how we are to consider the opportunities that we have, how we are to live faithfully with the resources that God gives us in light of the fact that we don't know what will come from our efforts. Now, there are two valid ways to understand what he says here, and there's two ways historically that it has been understood. One way is to say that he could be speaking here of generosity, and, and the idea would be that generosity has a certain reciprocity built into it. In other words, that if you're generous to others, you're generous with the resources that God gives you, then in your time of need, you can expect to find people generous toward you. So in that sense, cast your bread on the surface of waters and divide your portion to seven speaks of this kind of loose-handed hold on the resources God gives and an ease of giving it and spreading it out to others, knowing that, again, it will return to you. This has often been understood this way, and there is a legitimacy to it, and it may very well be the way that Solomon intends it here. And it certainly has parallels in the rest of Scripture. Uh, We're familiar with the words of Jesus, in fact, in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. I'll read it to you. He says, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And so that is a, a basic principle that we understand that God has built into the universe in the way that we relate to one another. If you're 
kind to others, generally what you receive is kindness in return. If you are generous with others, then you will find that in your time of need, they are more willing to help you and to be a help to you. And so that is one way to take it. However, this idea is not mentioned anywhere else in Ecclesiastes, and the immediate context would lend to another reading, namely, and this is the second way to take it, and and the way that I think is most likely here, and that is to say that in light of the uncertainties of life, in light of the opportunities that God gives us, in light of our responsibility before God, that we are to invest wisely. We are to invest wisely with what God has entrusted to us. So to put it in a modern proverb, it would be like, don't put all of your, or nothing ventured, nothing gained. In other words, take what you have and be willing to put it out there to see what God may do with it. Because life is uncertain, but we do have a responsibility to act wisely with what God has given. Now, to say that, however, is not to say that this portion of Scripture, of course, is here to give us investment advice, to tell us how to manage our portfolios. The emphasis, then, is not necessarily on an increase in investment, and that being the sum of his wisdom, but to realize that we are to conduct ourselves in the world with a sense of reality and with a sense of trusting God. That's the idea of it. And so he says, first, then, here, be willing to take measured risk. And that's the idea, then, of verse 1. To be willing to take measured risk. Cast your bread upon the waters or the surface of the waters. Now, now at first, that might sound like an odd bit of advice. And, and one of the first things that might come to our mind is if we cast our bread on the waters, won't it be soggy? Isn't that sort of a worthless endeavor to begin with? You put bread in the water, you know what happens. We used to do that. We used to bake hooks and catch fish and You'd roll it up and put it on a hook and put it in the water. Uh, But it was certainly not something you'd want to eat after it's been in a lake. And so here, cast your bread on the surface of waters. What exactly uh, does he mean? Well, he's not talking literally here about casting bread as if that is some benefit. That's to read too much into it. One suggests that the imagery of bread as a staple and necessity of life is is here pictured as being part of an investment, a business adventure that is sent out overseas and international maritime trade. And the idea is that uh, you take uh, a risk in in business venture, you take uh, what is entrusted to you, and as you send it out, you hope to make some kind of return on your investment. And I think there's probably an element of truth. That's most likely the idea here. But the general idea in in either case is, is this. Do not be idle with what you have. Be willing to stretch yourself out, take some risk, venture to be successful in some deed, in some task, in some venture. Seek to accomplish something with what God has given you. As I mentioned earlier, I think I said this. Uh, It was in my head anyway. Uh, that a common proverb like that would be nothing ventured, nothing gained. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. The only way to accomplish nothing is to do nothing and to take no risk. But this is not an attitude that's commended by God in life, and that's the idea here. There's, there's no particular wisdom in doing nothing. In fact, it can reflect a lack of trust in God, a lack of trust in uh, God's resources that he has given to us. If we were to put this in, a, in a, this principle in a broad spiritual sense, uh, we're reminded of the parable of Jesus gave about how we are to be responsible with the things he's entrusted to us spiritually in light of his purposes in the kingdom of God. Let me just remind you of this passage. We won't spend a lot of time there, but, but it illustrates this principle in a, in a deeper sense. Uh, If we remember in Matthew 25, he's speaking about the kingdom. He's giving a parable of the kingdom. And he says then that a a man who had property entrusted his possessions uh, to some of his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to one he gave one talent. And we remember the story. The one with the five went out and made five more. The one with the two went out and made two more. But the last slave who had received only one did nothing. He went and he buried it. And then when his master returned, he presented his master exactly what he had been trusted with, with having taken no risk, not having in in any way acted upon the responsibility entrusted to him, and his master was not pleased. 
And he says in verse 24, And the one who had received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. In other words, he was not commended for his safety. He was not commended for his caution to not lose what had been entrusted with him. But rather, he was condemned for his lack of taking opportunity with what his master had entrusted him to bring, if possible, some increase. He misunderstood the character and the nature of his master. He misunderstood the responsibility of what had been entrusted to him. Now, the ultimate meaning there in that parable is that those who hear the the message of the Messiah, who have received the blessings of the teaching of the covenant, the examples, and so forth, and yet refuse to act on it, who simply hold it but never embrace it in a way that it motivates action in their life, in fact, show themselves to be unbelievers, to not know the true heart of the master and to be rejected by him. But the principle, the broad principle that is being implied there is simply this, is that God has entrusted us with things and that it is a matter of faith to act responsibly with them. And then he mentions another angle of this in verse 2 he says be wise in light of the possibility of loss or we could say even though there is the possibility of loss or we could even say even though there is the certainty of loss in many cases number two divide your portion of verse two to seven or even to eight for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth now again if somebody takes this as charity which is a valid way to do so then the idea would be to be generous and you will find, again, someone to be generous to you in your time of need. However, again, more likely here, the idea here is is live with these resources in such a way that you know the future is uncertain. It's uncertain. Unexpected events will come unexpectedly. (laughs) That's, That's why they are such. And nothing is certain, no matter how certain it seems to us. And so invest yourself and your resources broadly. Again, a contemporary proverb might be, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Don't don't put all of your resources, don't put all of your investments into one place because the reality is things very often don't work out the way that we planned. Uh, As I was going through this, the illustration that uh, came to my mind is, uh, it was it's kind of a, a funny thing, but it kind of illustrates the negative side of this, and that is, uh, I had a job one time, and, and uh, many of the people that I worked with, there was somebody that I worked with, and the penny stocks used to be a big thing, and uh, this one person invested in a penny stock, and he ended up making a lot of money, I don't remember how much it was, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he, he worked a, a simple job like the rest of us, but nonetheless, he had made all this money, and he became like the guru of investment after that, and there was like this, this buzz that kind of went around uh, this area where I worked, and everybody was trying to get rich off these uh, penny stocks. One person had such an insight, as a matter of fact, he actually got a second mortgage on his home to invest in a penny stock stock and uh, that was going to make him rich and, and so on and so forth and well as you can probably imagine it it failed it didn't work and he's stuck with a second mortgage of his home and everybody else his dreams of being this uh this uh wall street shark are, are shot and reality hits them right in the face and that's kind of the idea here is is don't be foolish Don't be foolish. You don't know what's going to happen. Don't be so certain about your own ability to determine or to predict the outcome of a venture. But be wise. The reality is that things very often don't work out uh, the way that we planned. They don't work out the way that we planned. That doesn't mean, however, that we should be inactive. It just means that we should live in such a way that we are wise and live in light of reality. Now, he's going to develop this point, and he does it first in verse 3, and that's essentially where he points us. 
He says, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies or there it is. There it is. It, it lies wherever it fell. Now, at first glance, this verse can seem to be a bit random. Like, what does that mean? How does that fit within the context? But however, it in actuality provides a, a tremendous insight and transition into essentially his application of this truth. The main idea is this. The main idea of verse 3 is this. You can't change the inevitable. That's the main idea. You can't change the inevitable. You can't fight against reality. A full cloud will produce rain. A tree, when it falls, whether it falls pointing to the north or to the south, is going to remain where it is. Now, one has suggested, and I think probably rightly so, that the illustration of the cloud captures the idea of inevitability, of certainty. And the illustration of the tree, where it falls, captures the idea of randomness. It could fall in any direction, whether it be to the north or to the south. And that's probably truth. It speaks of the certain inevitability of realities that God has built into the world and the randomness of events from our perspective. As a matter of fact, he mentioned that back in verse 11 of chapter 9, something similar. He said, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. It's not to say that those with ability usually are successful and those without Ability usually aren't. There is, there is a certain moral consistency and reality that God has built into the universe. But nothing is for certain. That's the idea. Nothing is absolutely for certain. And we have to deal with reality as it is in a fallen world. But one that is governed by the sovereign hand of God. And the key point here, at least in this, is uh, don't live ideal, idealistically. Don't live with an idealism that denies reality, where you think that everything simply works as it should, where justice is always met, hard work always pays off, uh, counsel in ventures always is going to bring success. It's not. It doesn't. And so accept that. Think as you will, be as certain as you will. It doesn't mean it's going to work out. And because something works out for you one time and you make an investment and lots of money, which, by the way, if I remember correctly, lost most of that in other investments, uh, don't, don't put too much into that. Don't, don't think that that gives some kind of indication of the greatness of your insight into investment. If you're so certain that one is going to pay out, uh, realize that very often people are certain all the time and it doesn't and they fail and they lose everything. And he's just saying this, that's the reality of life. Don't live in an idealistic world. Don't think that you can predict the future. And again, he just said this. That is the mark of a fool in verse 14 of chapter 10. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. A fool is the one who boasts about the things over which he knows little to nothing and over which he has absolutely no control. I mean, practically, that means then that we're not devastated when things don't work out as planned and we're measured in our joy when things go better than expected. We can be thankful, but we realize that that doesn't mean that that's how life is going to be from now on. We, we take the event as it is. And it means we're not overly devastated when things don't go our way, when they don't go out as planned, because we realize that's a part of life. That's just the reality. Some things work out, some things don't. We keep moving forward. And so the real wisdom here then is in having a perspective. One put it like this. Most likely advice given, the advice given here does not have one precise meaning. Instead, Coalette, that's the preacher, is inviting his readers to embrace a certain way of looking at the world. They are to take a long-term view of life, which accepts the good and the bad. They are to uh, hold loose their lives and their possessions, not becoming too attached to them. Certainly, such a view of life should affect both business practice and everyday relationships. It's holding on to this world loosely and living under the reality of God's providence. Again, one of the most precious uh, Passages, one of the most precious truths, a verse that we all memorize, or many of us, that encapsulates a wise response to this reality is, comes from the same writer in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 5. Just listen, familiar words. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart 
Do not lean on in your own understanding. And everybody who has read that verse has immediately recognized that's the most challenging part. Do not lean on our own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge what he requires from you. Acknowledge his will. Acknowledge his word. Acknowledge his presence. Acknowledge his providence. Acknowledge that God is the one working in this situation. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge the reality of God as the one who is intimately involved in working out his purpose. And it says, and he will make your paths straight. He will give you wisdom. He will give you understanding. He will help you make decisions. Verse 7, but do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Reverence him. Understand who he is as the Lord of all of creation, the creator of the ends of the earth, and turn away from evil. That's wisdom. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. And that is an application of trusting him. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And that's really behind Solomon's instruction here. Live in light of reality. Live in a way that's active in your faith. Live in a way that takes risks, that makes ventures that understands that misfortune comes and so you spread yourself wisely, your investments, your times, the resources that God gives you, that you will not lose everything with a moment of impulsiveness or foolishness, but realize that we simply don't know and we, we live under the reality that we don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that, again, God hasn't given us a responsibility and a certain power to bring about results. If you remember the very beginning of the creation account, or in the creation account, it is the beginning, uh, is that we are to subdue the earth. We are to bring it into submission as God's vice regents, as it were, on the earth, as those who are to rule over creation, who are to extract from creation all that it can produce for the flourishing of man to the glory of God. God has given us, in that sense, a measure of control and responsibility to do so. But this is now conditioned, this reality, by the fall, by the reality of sin and the mystery of God's providence and the vanity of this world in its ultimate sense to bring lasting satisfaction. But we are to live actively trusting God. Now, all of this is to move us really to at the, what is the, the, the high point of this, and that is in verses four through six. And that is where he says, how do we apply this then? Uh, he who watches, let me read it, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. For whether, or whether both of them alike will be good. So how do we respond to all of that? Essentially, it is this. Be diligent in your task and trust God. And he first, as he often does, to make his point, hits us with a contrast. And so he starts with the wrong response to understanding the uncertainties of life, to understanding our lack of control over what God has made and what he's given. And the wrong response then is to do nothing to watch the wind, to look at the clouds. In other words, to be a procrastinator, to be lazy, to have the attitude that says, whatever will be, will be. It's going, I have no control, therefore why work hard, why take risk, why venture to do anything that will uh, require something of me. Whatever will be, will be. It's to have an approach to life that is detached, lazy, and unmotivated to accomplish anything significant to do anything of worth, to do anything of value, to do anything that will cause us to take some kind of risk, to be detached, unmotivated, to just kind of float through. That's the idea here. Now, the imagery, of course, comes from an agrarian culture, clouds, sowing, wind, reaping, those type of things. And the immediate analogy in the minds of his readers would have been the, a farmer who is negligent to do the necessary work to prepare his crop, to prepare his fields, to expect the harvest in due time. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to mention this, he uses that exact illustration in Proverbs where he says this, 
I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the, this is uh, chapter 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. He did not take care to, to weed it, to remove the harmful elements from his field. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. When everyone else who put in the work at the proper time is reaping the benefits of that, they're reaping a harvest, they have food in their barns, food on their table, they have sustenance for life and maybe even enough to share with others. The one who did not put in the work when it was necessary, but rather was lazy, presumptuous, is in fact the one who will come uh, into want. And so... He condemns then the attitude that says, since I can't be sure of the outcome, therefore I won't work to achieve anything. Which, even if we follow through the idea of the sluggard in Proverbs, is really oftentimes not so much a a rational conclusion as it is an excuse for laziness. It's simply an excuse to not want to put in the hard work. Or it's a cover-up for fear. I don't want to put myself out there in a position where I can fail And sometimes that can be from pride because I think too much of myself to fail. I think too much of myself to see, have others see me as a failure, to see myself in any kind of weakness, to be able to learn from my failures. I don't want to do that. So I'll just keep myself safe. I'll keep myself huddled in my own little world and never really venture out to do anything. I can't ever be challenged to think more clearly if I never witness of the gospel because I'm afraid I won't know what to say. I'll never, I'll never fail at anything uh, if I don't try anything, and so there can be then a way to keep ourselves safe, but that is not what is pleasing to God. He says, go out, do something, take risk, act in faith, know God's in control, be willing to have a loss, be wise in the ways that you do that, but realize that God has entrusted things to you ways in which you are to glorify him. Idleness, laziness, inactivity is not an option for the Christian in the variety of ways that we are called to work that out. What is the right response? What is the right response? And in verse five, and this really is a wonderfully encouraging truth. He says in verse five, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. And the idea is simply this. Recognize that we never know what God is doing, but he's doing something. He's doing something. We may not always see God's hand in the sense of some clear working of God that's compelling forward in some or propelling forward in some direction, but God is working. He is doing something. He is working a plan. Just because you can't see, now we have machinery to do this now, but the idea is just because they can't see the baby being formed in the womb doesn't mean it's not being formed. Just because they can't see the activity of God does not mean that he's not active fulfilling his purpose. That's the idea of the analogy. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we know that God will bring about something through it. He is fulfilling his purpose. Now, this is important, of course, and it, and it brings up, uh, at least uh, in one sense, the idea of what we sometimes think of as fate and in contrast to providence. Now, the difference between fate and providence those who just say, again, you know, it's, it's fate. Whatever will be, will be. Is this, is that fate speaks of bare inevitability. In other words, it is what it is. So someone could come to this experience and say, it is what it is. Fate has brought it about. There's nothing that I can do about it. Some people have this idea of God's sovereignty. God is going to do what he's going to do. I can't change it, so why worry or why do anything? If it, and it's... And it's, and it's uh, most extreme sense, an unbiblical sense, it even reaches down into the gospel. Why should I even be a witness to the gospel? Because God's going to save whoever he's going to save. 
But God never treats his sovereignty in that way and his providence in that way. He gives us commands. He tells us that he is the ultimate cause, and yet he works through means. He works through the means that he has designed to bring about that cause. So fate speaks of bare inevitability. That is, it is what it is. And providence, however, speaks of purpose. It speaks of purpose. Spurgeon, in a sermon uh, entitled God's Providence, Uh, said this, he captured this well. He said, the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says, God moves the wheels along and there they are. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. And so Solomon points us to that very truth. Look at the end of verse 5. You do not know what? The activity of God who makes all things, who brings about all things, who is working in all things to accomplish his purpose. That is his providence. That is his providence. And it is a glorious truth and a glorious doctrine worth considering for just a bit. Now, As I mentioned before, I I think in my mind anyway, hopefully this is helpful, that to think of God's providence as God's sovereignty in action, it's the activity of God's sovereign. Sovereignty speaks of his position, his rule, his authority, his power. He is sovereign as God. Providence is how he works that out in his creation, how he brings it about, how he applies it to everything that he has made, how he brings about what he in his sovereign purposes and design has intended to bring about. Now, in an ultimate sense, in an ultimate sense, God is working everything to this one great end. Can you imagine maybe what it is? It is this. He states it explicitly. uh, And then from Genesis to Revelation uh, 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 illustrates this and demonstrates this. But this great end is this, the great end of God in everything, the very reason that there is something and not nothing, the very reason that God ever created in the first place is for this one great end. It is to bring about the praise of his glory in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why everything exists. That's why there's something rather than nothing. That's why God said in the beginning, let there be. That's why God created us. That's why God created the world. That's why the universe exists. So he says this in Ephesians 1, that he adopted us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means then, before God created anything, God had determined that he would create a people in his image, that this people in his image would fall, and that he would call out of this fallen race a people for himself to bring into his most intimate fellowship with him through his son. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then he says later in Ephesians, he made known to us the mystery of his will, That thing that we would not know otherwise, his purpose in doing what he has done. He says, he made this known to us according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, listen, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In other words, the gospel wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't as though God made a creation and said, I really hope this works out. Oh, bummer, it didn't. Well, here's a plan B. Plan A from the beginning was that I would create a people, they would fall, and I would redeem them. And in the mystery of God's wisdom and in the mystery of God's will, God had determined in his infinite mind that that is the way that he would bring the most glory to himself. And it includes everything in between. That... That ultimately is how God would display his wisdom before all of the intelligent world. And by that I mean humans and even angels. Listen to this. Paul, after speaking about his ministry of the gospel, says that it is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
That means God created everything. He created everything with the purpose of redeeming a people through his own son, his own incarnation, his own suffering, his own resurrection, his own ascension, his own intercession, his own work as mediator, priest, and king in calling a people to himself so that all of the created intelligent world, all of the angelic world would look at that and be amazed at God's wisdom. That's why he did it. So that they would be amazed. He would display his wisdom. Uh, Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, and I want to flesh this out. But he says in Colossians 1 that all things have been created, speaking of Christ, through him and for him. How were all things created? Through Christ. Why were all things created? For Christ. Why? So that the Father may be glorified, the Son may be glorified, the Spirit may be glorified, each according to their work. One has put it this way, the ultimate goal of God in initiating the entire plan of salvation before creation was that he would be praised for the glory of his grace. Now this providence of God, his working out this ultimate end, then includes all of the details of human activity to bring about his purposes. Now this does not eliminate the significance of human action nor eliminate human responsibility, as Solomon has already made clear. It does, however, do this. It makes certain that the ultimate reality behind both is the purpose and the will of God and that it will stand. That's the idea. It's mysterious, but it is reality. I want to just take a few moments then, and obviously this is a, is, is a, is a, is a very large topic. I want to do little more than bring some of the scope of it to our attention. That's, that's really the intention here, or the in, intention. So let's briefly consider the comprehensive nature then of God's sovereignty, of God's providence. Let's briefly consider the comprehensive nature of it. It is a sovereignty, it is a rule that stands over and in every part of his creation, every detail. Even the inanimate creation, even that we are part of creation of rocks and sun and stars, those things that are inanimate and yet servants of the living God. Let me just give you a few verses on each of these things. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 says this. You can turn or just listen. I'll be jumping around. Psalm 104 verse 14 says this, or actually even going back up. He sends forth, verse 10. Uh, he sends, well... Well, we won't read the whole psalm. I've got to, we're going to end up back at verse 1. But he says this. Let me just read this. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so they may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart and he goes on all of this water that falls from the sky grass that grows all of this food that grows for man to eat is a part of God upholding and sustaining his creation to accomplish his will everything for which he designed it and again just listen Psalm 147 Verse 8 says this, He covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. And he does all of this to bear witness to man that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer, that he is the worker behind everything that he made to bring it about. Listen to Paul's argument to those who, pagans, who after seeing some mighty works of God wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. He said this, he did, in speaking to this crowds. He says, in generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways, and yet, listen, he has not, and he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. He satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. It's the God who made heaven and earth who did these things. These aren't simply the consequences of random causes. They are the direct fruit of the providence of God, down to the details. Uh, in fact, it's inconsistent to think 
if we would, that God's hand is just somehow uh, evident in the big things, but not in all of the details of life, even those things that seem inconsequential, such as grass growing and food growing and so forth. Again, Spurgeon said this in another sermon, this one just entitled Providence. He says, it were, if it were inconsistent belief that the mass were in God's hand whilst the atom was left to chance. It is indeed a belief that contradicts itself. We must believe all chance or else all of God. Either God's in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. We are not deist. It's, it's uh, often understood in the fact that God created the world and then stepped away and just let it run according to natural processes. Uh, some in that would hold that he does step in at certain points to bring about a result, but by and large, he basically is detached and uninterested. But that's not the doctrine of Scripture. It says that God is, is so involved with his creation while he stands outside of his creation, while he is transcendent, while he is not a part of his creation, he yet rules over it even in the details of its very existence so that he causes even grass to grow. This is without... I, I love this, uh, this, this doctrine and it is so clarifying. It is sometimes called the doctrine of concurrence. I know some have heard that. Many of you haven't. Don't worry about it. The idea of it is simply this. It is to say that God cooperates with his creation in every action directing... I'll simplify this a bit, although you, you, you'll get this. Directing it to act according to its distinctive properties. In other words, it is to say... If you were a scientist and you looked at grass growing, you could explain all of the processes. You could explain how the sun and the water and the roots and how it goes from a seed to up and you can dissect it and you can do all of those things and you can explain a process as you observe it in action. Concurrent says yes and what is observable and able to be discerned by a scientist in that example is because God upholds all things by the word of his power. As the psalmist said, God causes the grass to grow. Why is that grass growing? Why is that process what it is? Why is that process continuing as it does? It is because God is behind it who spoke it into creation and the living God whose living word is always upheld by his omnipotent power upholds it exactly as God designed it to be upheld. That's the idea of concurrence, that he created things to have a certain function, but he is the one who designed that function and upholds it and directs it to fulfill his purposes. That's the idea of concurrence. And so God is working. Even when we look at creation, we see the act of the living God upholding it. Every tree is growing because God is actively in that moment upholding it to function like a tree, to grow like a tree, that tree, in that place, for as long as it is, and so forth. It's a glorious true. He rules over animate creation, animate creation, not just rocks and trees and grass and the sun and so forth, but things that live and, and move. Uh, let me give you a few passages that you're familiar with. Matthew chapter 6. Actually, he brings both of these, the animate and inanimate, together. He says, why uh, you being worried can add a single hour? Who can be of you being by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil or spin, and yet I say to you that Solomon, all of his glory, clothed himself like, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God clothes, clothes the grass of the field, in other words, it's there because God put it there, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he will not much more clothe you? He said before that, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they gather into barns. And yet, who feeds them? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? In other words, even the birds of the field, even things that are easily unnoticed to us, have the direct attention of God and he is directing them to fulfill his purpose. He feeds them. He cares about them. He upholds them. Birds are birds and function like birds because God made them to do so. And the point there is, is he not much more interested in you and able to care and sustain you? Let me give you one other verse here. Chapter 1 Kings. And I, well, let me read this. 1 Kings 17.4 says this. Uh, this is Elijah 
down by the brook when he was running away from Jezebel after his uh, glorious, um, well, when he's, he's, he's running away from, uh, out of fear of, of the people of, of God, of, out of those who would do him harm. And he says this, but God hid him. And he says that he went, uh, and according to the word of the Lord, he went and he lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and meat in the evening, and he would drink by the brook. Excuse me, I jumped ahead. Mount Baal, uh, Carmel is later. This is where he's predicting drought and he was predicting hardship on the people of Israel and, and while that was coming about, God was hiding him. But, but the point here is this, that God so directed the birds of the air to bring him meat and bread as he hid, he sustained him under his life. God was directing these birds to do that. They didn't do it by their own will. They did it because of the will of God. Again, let me quote from Spurgeon. He says this, The believer in providence holds that the wing of every bird has stamped upon it the place where it shall fly and fly never with such vagaries of its own wild will. It cannot diverge so much as the millionth part of an inch from its predestined tract. In other words, God is in control. God is in control of what to us seem like random events. He's in control of what seem like random events. Again, let me just give you a couple of passages here. Proverbs 16, 33 says this. Uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the millions and thousands of Details that go in to the outcome of lots being cast, the, the force at which they were thrown, their shape, the conditions in which they were thrown, the millions of other physical details that enacting it to land exactly where it is are ultimately not chance. They are because God is directing it. God is directing its decision is from the Lord. Listen to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 12. 1 Samuel 26, verse 12 says this. I, well, he says this. So David is going into the camp of Saul, uh, and he took some men with him, and it says in verse 12, So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it. Why? Because David was so stealth. It says, Nor did anyone awake, for they were all asleep. Listen, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. That's one of the reasons I love 1 Samuel so much is those details like that are throughout the entire book. There David was acting. There David was going to let uh, Saul know that he was there. He's not his enemy, essentially, saying, I could have killed you, but I didn't, is, is the idea there. But the point is, is David snuck in and his mission was successful. Why? Because God had caused a deep sleep to fall on them so that no one wake, woke and then attacked David. And again, each of these things that seem like random experiences to us and many more could be given are perfectly directed to, by God to accomplish his will and his purposes. The affairs of nations are in the hand of God. Nations rise and nations fall and again the zillions of details that bring that about are according to the providence of God. Let me read some familiar passages. He says in Acts 17, verse 26, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. It is in the presence of God. It is under the sovereign hand of God. Uh, let me just mention a few passages. Isaiah 45, God raised up King Cyrus according to his word. Why? King Cyrus was an unbeliever. He was not a worshiper of the true God of Israel. He was not a worshiper of Yahweh. And yet God raised him up and even called him my servant. My servant, why did he raise him up? So that in Cyrus's position of power and his success militarily, in his success politically, in his affluence and ability, he would provide for his people to come back into the land. God did that. God did that. 
God raised him up to accomplish his purposes. Cyrus wasn't dedicating his life to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and yielding to all of his commands in the Torah and the law of Moses and listening to the prophets. He had no concern for those things, and yet he was fulfilling the will of God. The same with Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and on down the list. God's providence then extends to every aspect of our lives. And let me just back up. Even in the affairs of the nations, we have to remember that God's providence is behind the details of the things that we endure in our own nation. He's ultimately behind the rise of the Antichrist. He's ultimately behind even the Satan-empowered ruler who will bring destruction on those who are saved in this time to put them to death. God's in control of that. God's in control of that. We'll look at that in more detail when we get to Revelation. He's in control of every aspect of our lives. Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of man plans his way. Can you finish it? But the Lord directs his steps. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, it is by the spirit that you are placed into the body exactly where God wants you. It is the gifts that you have that God has given you, the opportunities that God has given you to honor him and to glorify him, the gifts that he has given you. That is all from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As though you had not received it. In other words, what you have, the opportunities you have, everything, every detail about your life is under the sovereign hand of God. But I want to circle back to one important point here. That this does not mean then, again, even as Solomon is making clear to us, don't be idle. Realize that, that God is working in ways that you cannot see, forming the wombs of the, uh, the, the bones of the child and the womb of the pregnant woman. But God is the one actively doing that. You cannot see it, but he is doing it. But that does not mean do nothing. It means get busy. It doesn't eliminate human responsibility then for our actions. And this is where concurrence, that idea, comes down and is applied even into humanity and the human decisions. We make decisions. We are responsible for those decisions we act according to our desires, and yet even in those actions, God is directing them and fulfilling his purpose. It is a mystery. It is a mystery. One said this, nor should any of this be looked at fatalistically or deterministically. God is not a blind, arbitrary force crushing the human will into submission, but rather in some mysterious way as a caring, sovereign father who works his will in and through our wills. This includes even the evil that people intend to do. Indeed, it includes everything. Let me give you some examples of that. Uh, there's so many, but let me give you just a few. And I'll have to do this quickly. Uh, but this is such an important part. And, and I think hopefully you recognize these things as you read through Scripture. Uh, let me give you one simple example here in the, in the judgment that God brought upon the prophet Samuel's son. So, so Eli, or excuse me, Eli. Uh, Samuel was under Eli. So Eli was uh, the priest, and he had sons who were wicked. They were doing evil things in their ministry as the priest. And Eli failed to rebuke them properly. He did speak to them, but he did not rebuke them properly and condemn them as he should have. And so then it says this, uh, speaking of their response to their father's uh, instruction. It says, if one man, Eli is speaking, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? What is the reason they would not listen to the voice of their father? One, because they were wicked. Yes, that's the whole point. But it's something more than that. It says this, for the Lord desired to put them to death. For the Lord desired to put them to death. God raised up Pharaoh, who was, lived his life in, in hatred, in opposition to God's purpose and God's will. And it says that God hardened his heart, and it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And that is simply to say this, that God was actively determining his purpose to display his own divine glory through the obstinance of Pharaoh. And yet, as he did that, he was working with Pharaoh's own desires to oppose God. So Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. 
me give you just one example. And we're going to have to stop here, but I, I have to at least give this example. It's one of the most, I think, uh, in, on this purpose, one of the most <laughs> clear and glorious passages. It's in Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, if, if you want to think of the sovereignty of God, how does this work out in the lives of people? Well, God is determined to bring judgment to his people. They have sinned against him. He has warned them. They have refused to listen to his warnings. God is going to bring judgment to his people. He's going to discipline them. And he's going to bring it, and he's going to do that through the nation of Assyria. And listen to what he says. Listen to the description. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod. Or excuse me, that's the positive part. Back up to verse 1. He says this, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust decisions. Uh, they deprive the needy of justice and so forth. And then he says, Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? In other words, that I'm going to bring upon you. And then he says this in verse 5, Woe to you, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. In other words, what's going to come upon you, Israel, is my doing. Assyria is the rod of my anger. He's a nation that I send against you. And then he says, to trample them down like mud in the streets, yet... It, speaking of Assyria, does not so intend, nor does it plan in its heart. In other words, the king of Assyria says, I'm going out to do the will of God. He says, no, no. Rather, it has as its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations for its own glory. It says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kano like Carchemish and Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus, other nations I've destroyed? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images as I have done to Samaria and her idols? And so it will be. That when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by my power, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. I have understanding. I have removed boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. I, and like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest as one gathers abandoned eggs. I gathered all the earth and there was none that flapped its wings or opened its beak or chirped? Is the axe to boast over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who yields it? And then he goes on. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors and so on. The idea is this. God decides to judge his nation, so what does he do? He raises up the nation of Assyria. He gives them power that is greater than his people Israel, And then he sends Assyria as an act of his own judgment against his people. But then he says, I'm going to judge you, Assyria, for what you did to my people. Why? Because even though I used you as a rod in my hand to fulfill my purpose, you did it out of rebellion to me, and therefore I will judge you for your rebellion. Beloved, that's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. That is the idea here of, of even of concurrence. God is working through the men, through the decisions of the king, his own thinking, his own thoughts, his own actions, and yet God is holding him accountable for all that he does and for the motives of what he does, and yet in the end, God's purpose was accomplished according to his will. That's the idea of sovereignty. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But this is what is behind the instructions of Solomon. You do not know what is going on, but know this, that God is working something. God is fulfilling his purpose. Sometimes that means that purpose is going to be in hardship, trial, discipline, or in an ultimate sense, judgment for unbelief. It means that God is sometimes working to bring success and blessing. He brings protection and provision for his people. He sustains them even in the hard times. But in all of these things, God is working and we don't know what he's doing all the time. As a matter of fact, rarely. Life is uncertainty. Time and chance overtake them all. But God is doing something. And so, be active. Be active. Walk in faith. 
And so I'll end it just with this. In verse six, sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will bring success. We don't know. We seek to be faithful as God is accomplishing his will through our faithfulness. Well, we'll pick it up from there next week. The thing I would leave you with is this. Understand that God has called us to be faithful with what he has given to us. In the gospel, that means we're faithful with the gospel. We sow seed, God causes the growth. We do our ministries, we have no idea what fruit it will be. We raise our children, we trust them to God as far as the outcome of their lives. We do our jobs, we don't know if it'll be there tomorrow. We live in the nation in obedience to God, and yet we don't know what the result of that will be. We fight for good causes, but they may fail, they may succeed. We work hard at our jobs, it may last, we may lose them. The idea is simply of this, is that God is working out a bigger thing. In terms of the world, he's working all things to the praise of his glory in Christ Jesus. In terms of our lives, as he moves us on to that end, he's working all things to shape us into the character and the life of Christ Jesus, that we may see more of his grace and his glory and be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so we work hard, we work out of faith, we trust him for what we cannot understand and we leave the results to him. That's how prayer works, by the way. Well, with that, let me pray. And we'll, we'll push off until um, uh, next week. We'll remember the Lord's Supper. But let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. You, you have given us such a wonderful and glorious picture of who you are. And we live dependently in this world. And, and that is even our Father what we come to realize when we come to the foot of the cross, we realize that we are helpless to save ourselves, that we bring nothing but sin. We have no resources within ourselves to come to the truth and to embrace Christ. That is a sovereign work of you. The wind blows where it wishes. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but we see the fruit of it, and that fruit is that regenerating work of the Spirit that brings forth life, that brings forth faith, that brings forth repentance, that brings forth in the heart of the one who is called by your sovereign work to say, I will lose my life that I may gain life in Christ. I will deny myself that I may follow him. I will give up everything that I may gain all the more in Christ. And so, Lord, we come to the cross that way, and by your grace, you help us to live that way in ever fuller ways. Help us to gladly live under your sovereign hand, knowing you are wise, that you are good. Help us to gladly live under your lordship, O oh Jesus, in your kingdom, as we realize that so much we don't understand now will be made gloriously clear upon your return. And we have that promise and know the end to which you're working. And so let us be faithful to work according to your ways and your word. We commit our lives to you. We thank you for your grace to us. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.